Welcome to the Yanks for Coming Soccer Show. My name is Carter Krishnire, along with Neil Blackman. Neil, you're preparing to leave uh, for the Women's World Cup in France, where you'll catch the U.S. group stage games and um, assuming a quarterfinal. I, I think that's a pretty safe assumption that the U.S. will be in the quarterfinals. Uh, what are your early impressions of the tournament as we're through the first weekend when we record this? Um, well, you know, I, I really thought uh... – well, Brazil finally won a game, so <laughs> that that had been a while without Marta. Yeah, without Marta, who's who's hurt, and um, you know, just Italy. I think uh, I, I mean we could talk about resurgent, not resurgent, really emerging Spain. He, yeah. I say res- resurgent because I'm thinking of, of 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 the men naturally, and and my apologies for that. Kind of an emerging young Spain team, but really an amazing day for Italy. Um, they played the way they wanted to play. Uh, they played slow. They were physical. Uh, they were smart with the ball. They didn't have as much of it, but you know they were really smart with it. Um, they really bothered Sam Kerr, even though she scored. Uh, and I just thought just a great win. And it's kind of the same thing that happens to Australia, right, Cardick? A yeah. lot is is they're really good and their quality shines through for large portions of the game, but they're still prone to those critical mistakes. We saw it against the U.S. in 2015, and uh, here we see it against uh, Italy, who, who win their uh, who uh, win for the first time in, in 20 years at the Women's World Cup. Yeah, even the foul that led to the winning Italy goal in the uh, fifth minute of stoppage time was absolutely unnecessary. Absolutely, You have three Australian defenders defending a single um, Italian who has the ball. And, and just kind of a, a silly foul. Um, Sam Kerr is one of the great players in the game. Uh, she's not quite at the level she was a year ago. And, you know, it, so much of this is timings of World Cups. And that's something that players can't control. Players um, are, are naturally have uh, a prime of their career. They have uh, dips in form. And, and Kerr's form, which has coincided with a dip in Australia's form the last six months and, and uh, the sacking of a coach, which we can – I think it's going to get relitigated. I'm sure it's being relitigated right now as we speak in the Australian press um, has created an environment where um, they're really struggling and, and uh, they're going to struggle, I think, to get out of the group. This is a very tough group they're in. So uh, that, that was an early impression. I think I agree with you on Spain. The thing that I think we've noticed about Spain since that friendly with the U S in January is how similarly to their men's team, they play, how there's a, uh, to use Alexi Lalas's word, to borrow his word from the Fox um, coverage this weekend, an ethos around Spanish football where you have the national teams, men's and women's, at all levels playing the same style, the same type of football, and then you have many of the club teams in, in Spain, although Real Madrid is a notable exception, but many of the uh, top club teams in Spain playing the same style. So that's, uh, that's something that, that uh, I took away from watching Spain. I'd let also... me ask you, let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. Sorry to interrupt you. The England. Um, do you, do you think not convincing as, as not as convincing as we thought it would be? Or do you think just regional rival rivalry games are weird? Yeah. Okay. Or, or so, both. No, I think, I think, I think it's a little of both. So I think rivalry games are weird. I, I know how much, uh, Scotland had been playing up to this. I also think um, as someone who listens and watches English coverage of football, probably more, more than I do American coverage, 
there, this is a tournament that in the past England has qualified for the last several Women's World Cups, but it's just kind of happened, right? And then if England's played well, they talked about it in tournament. This time, there was an inordinate amount of hype for it. Like, it was a, a, an England men's tournament. I mean, I liken it to the 2006 World Cup where everyone in England was convinced they were going to win the World Cup, and they went in and uh, you know, limped to the quarterfinals and uh, mercifully got put out of their misery by, by Portugal in, in that tournament. I, I, this hype has been similar. There's been so much coverage about the English, uh, England women to, to the point where I think uh, Phil Neville, who was also himself a member of the media, right, um, <laughs> wanted them to just stop. So I think there's a lot of pressure of expectation around them. Um, Scotland also, their first uh, major tournament, men's or women's in, in over two decades, were very, very hyped for this match, the regional rivalry, all the political implications. We know, uh, look, Neil, let's not, let's not hide it right now. Uh, the <laughs> idea of Scottish independence is once again rising to the forefront. Um, I think there were a couple key things, though, in this match. I think the decision um, to uh, by Phil Neville, and, and maybe Tony Duggan's injury played into it, and, and she wasn't even dressed yesterday. But uh, Beth Mead, I don't think, gave um, England what they were looking for in that position. And I think as the tournament goes on, you're going to have to see uh, Tony Duggan in that position. And then I think up front, um, you're going to want to see uh, – more uh, from uh, from some of the English women in the final third. Georgia Stanaway is a very young player uh, who got a cameo yesterday, but I think as the tournament goes on, it's going to be a very important part of what Neville does. Uh, there are selection decisions. This is actually more similar to the U.S., right? I think England's the other team, along with France, right? Those are the three teams with a lot of depth, where there are actual squad decisions managers have to make. We've talked at length on this show about Jill Ellis's squad decisions and which at some of the decisions she's made, although I think coming into this tournament, we do know what her 11 will be. Um, whereas with England, I think there's still some, some uh, questions out there. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking even at her, at her more advanced age, if you're going to control the tempo of matches in midfield, you might want Karen Carney in there. She came off the bench yesterday. So um, maybe there'll be a little bit of squad rotation. But yeah, I'm, I'm a little concerned about England, but not overly concerned because, as I just said, I just named three players who are coming off the bench uh, or who <laughs> will come off the bench. And those players can always be inserted into the, into the first 11 uh, in the knockout stage if there's some um, stagnancy. The one thing I was a little concerned about with England yesterday was the center backs. Uh, Steph Houghton, who's one of my favorite because she's the captain of Man City, also the club team I support. Um, she was a little unsure of herself uh, on the ball, trying to pass out of the back. And right. Scotland took advantage of that a couple of times. That's not something I'm accustomed to seeing from her, although I did see it a few years ago when uh, Man City lost to Leon, the great Leon team in the Champions League two, two seasons ago. So um, she does have a tendency to do that in pressure situations, to give the ball away. So that would be something I'm concerned about if I'm, I'm Phil Neville. Uh, we're recording on, on Monday morning. I mean, anything... Today we have debutante um, Argentina, uh, and then uh, Canada make make their debut. Yeah, um, Canada. I I, um, I like the kind of transition in, in style of play. We saw it at the Concacaf Championship, but then we saw the U.S. just absolutely hammer them in the final. So um, I think there's less expectation around this Canada team than there has been in the past, which is probably a good thing because I think there's been maybe a diluted sense of 
expectation around Canadian women's soccer um, through the course of the last decade. Um, and maybe it wasn't diluted. Look, I mean, they were one very controversial and odd call, quite frankly, away from uh, beating the U.S. in the Olympics in 2012. And that was by the letter of the law, the right call, but you never see it made, right? Um, right. So they, they've been close. They've been knocking on the door, but um, I'm, I'm curious to see how they do. I'm really curious to see how this young Japan team does. And then obviously um, you and I have both made our travel plans around Team yeah. USA. And, uh, yeah, uh, tomorrow's the day. Yeah, and, and in terms of just real quickly – we, we've dissected it before on this podcast. And if you haven't listened to uh, my interview with Caitlin Murray from last week uh, on our stream, just, just download that because we, we get into a lot of, um, you know, micro issues with, with this national team on that show. But uh, I look at the U S team, I'm growing a little more confident in their ability to potentially defend this women's world cup title. I'm still um, concerned about the left back position and Casey short, not being brought to France. I think maybe that's my last holdup about Jill's selection. Now, um, I will continue to question the formation if we're not able to work Christian Press into the, into the team at, at critical times. Because if you're playing in a 4-4-2 or 3-5-2, you have an ability to play her and Alex Morgan at the same time, right? Um, and if you're not, then you don't. And obviously, we're Alex Morgan is going to be the number nine. So, that's um, that's the other question mark. But then, if you play um, in a three-five-two, there are other implications in terms of uh, in, in terms of your midfield and in terms of your attack. I mean, it, I, I, the four-three-three seems to be a formation that best utilizes the talents of Megan Rapinoe and Tobin Heath, who are probably going to be your, your your most critical providers along with Lindsay Horan in this tournament. So, uh, I, I think Jill probably has gotten it right, but we'll see. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the interesting questions in the group stage, just because of the way it's structured, is is what the U.S. does from a squad rotation basis um, standpoint. Uh, and, and it's something John Halloran touched on at, at YanksAreComing.com in, in his piece about some of the questions. I mean, they have uh, a couple of different rotation strategies. And, and I think the real question is, do you rotate the entire starting lineup when you play Chile, another uh, one of the debutantes, or... or um, do you kind of mix and match your rotations, which maybe disrupts you from a rhythm standpoint, but make sure that everybody in the first team has had some rest going into the Sweden match. Um, you know, Chile, the kind of team that is just dangerous enough to where you don't necessarily want to get too, too crazy with your changes and, and drop points. But um, I still think with three subs, you know, Jill Ellis is able to, probably make the changes she needs for the u.s to find a goal if things got dicey so i mean you know it'll be interesting the what i would say is that tomorrow um you know i think you have to look at maybe that that quartet of of morgan heath rapinoe and and press even uh let's make it a quintet and add haran and say that of those players one of them, maybe you sit all together, uh, whether it's Kristen tomorrow or Lindsay tomorrow. Um, and then you probably make sure that you're subbing out two of the three, Morgan Heath Rapinoe, right? Like you make sure that they don't have to play 90 minutes against Thailand because what's the point? If it's me, 
you know, I'm I'm doing Alex and and Rapino just because I want to make sure I have 90 minutes of of Rapido against Sweden. And, and I want to make sure also additionally that Kristen Press gets enough football in these first two matches that she's ready to go if we need her against Sweden. Uh, ultimately, uh, I'm not I, I'm not trying to put down Thailand or. Uh, uh, Chile, fantastic accomplishment for Chile to qualify. Uh, Thailand now uh, in their second successive Women's World Cup, and uh, that's that's a big accomplishment for them, qualifying out of Asia, uh, a federation that's produced China and Japan, right, two, two, two powers on the women's game, uh, although China has obviously uh, waned a bit. Oh, one quick point on, on that. China looked very good against Germany. It looks like the Chinese are maybe uh, uh, this generation of Chinese players might be – uh, re-emerging for them as a world power. Um, my point is, I think you're, the, the, the group is going to come down to that Sweden game. Ultimately, uh, what happens in that match is going to determine your roadmap for the rest of the tournament. So uh, you're going to want to have Kristen Press having played some football. Uh, you're going to also want to have a pretty uh, well-rested and ready-to-go Alex Morgan, uh, Tobin Heath, and Megan Rapino. So, um, and, and keep in mind, Lindsay Horan has, has had some injuries this year also. So maybe you, you, you manage her minutes in the first two matches as well. Yeah, no, and I, you know, I, like I said, I think those five players are kind of the key to how you manage this group stage. And then, you know, I would just do it. I, I like John Halloran's idea of kind of incrementally doing it rather than overhauling the entire lineup in the second match. Yeah. Um, just because I think there's, from a continuity and leadership standpoint, there's value in, in having, uh, the, you know, there being a starting 11, right? And even if you're mixing and matching generally for it to stay the same, I think it's a good idea. Uh, but this is also kind of a group where Carly Lloyd is really valuable. I mean, because I think Carly can play an hour against Thailand. She can play an hour against uh, Chile and she could probably score and, and be super effective and it gives the U.S. a chance to kind of make sure that their legs are really good for for the Sweden match which is really important just from a seeding standpoint I know there's a lot of people that are like well would it really be best to win the group because France is waiting in the quarterfinals I, I don't find that to be very valuable in World Cup discussions because that's what knockout stages are like you're going to have to play them eventually right yeah, yeah, no, no, exactly. And, and that's, uh, that, that, that's the thing. I mean, I, I, I think um, we realized in the last World Cup where we're going to have to play Germany or France in the semifinal. And, uh, and, and you just have to deal with that. You're going to have to play these teams eventually, right? Um, you can't take the mindset that uh, some people were taking last year in the Men's World Cup, most recent major tournament, where folks are saying, well, Belgium should drop their last group game so they can avoid Brazil. Remember that? Um, yeah. So Roberto Martinez changes his lineup, you know, makes, I think, eight or nine changes. They still win. They still finish on nine points. They still end up with Brazil in the quarterfinals, and lo and behold, they beat them. So, you know, you don't want to to mess with the continuity of of things. You're going to have to beat these teams eventually to win a World Cup. Of course, Belgium didn't win the World Cup, but my point is is that there was a, a lot of talk that Belgium should try and game the system to avoid playing Brazil. And uh, Roberto Martinez tried it and right. they still won. <laughs> they still ended up playing Brazil. Um, so I, I completely agree with that. So uh, let's move on, Neil, uh, to the USU 20 team. A good run in the, in the uh, uh, 
U20 World Cup eliminated by Ecuador in the quarterfinals. That's, that stage of the tournament seems to be a bugaboo for the U.S. Last three, uh, three U20 World Cups put out in the quarterfinals, 2007 with uh, 2005 and 2007, arguably with uh, the best teams the U.S. has had, uh, not able to get past that stage. But the U.S. in most of these U tournaments has one signature win. In 2005, it was beating Messi and Argentina, who went on to win the tournament beat them in the group stage. 2007 was beating Brazil um, and beating an Uruguay team that had, uh, I can't remember either Suarez or Cavani. One of the two were on that team. Um, and obviously this year it's beating France, uh, a, a very good French team with a guy like Alban Lafad in goal, who is already uh, emerging as one of the best goalkeepers in Serie A. So uh, good signs from that, but then obviously a bad quarterfinal match. Yeah, I mean, look. Um, first, let's say what probably should be said is that is that Ecuador is good. That they're, yeah, right. Very they're good. South American champions, U twenty champions. So it's not like the U.S. lost to the senior Ecuador teams that people probably have in their head from like the Copa America, right? When the U.S. and 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 Ecuador met in the in the Copa America. Uh, knockout rounds and you know Ecuador was really really direct and had some quality but the U.S. was was probably better from both a tactical and a quality standpoint which was rare in the late Clinton era um so I think it's important to remember that this is this is a very good Ecuador team it's sort of like the Venezuela team that beat the U.S. in the playoff and then made it all the way to the finals right yeah um, last, last time and, and then we saw kind of the fruits of that Venezuelan labor a little bit yesterday, right? Is that Venezuela isn't just Rondon. It's, it's a bunch of kind of emerging pieces that make them a real threat to qualify for, for cutter. Um, now that said, you know, I did, I thought that the U S best performance Cardiff was Nigeria. Um, like, and don't get me wrong. I mean, I think that there's, you know, that the, the U S kind of did a classic U S thing against France and they didn't play tremendous, um, but what I liked about it was that they played their way. You know, it wasn't like they bunkered and scraped out a couple goals. Like they had an idea of how they wanted to play against France. They didn't recede from that. They were they were well prepared and and they went at them. And yeah, it took a bounce or two to get those goals. But um, you know, I still wouldn't say on the whole that they were the better team. They just kind no, of no. found a way to win. Uh, Nigeria, who is also very good. Though I mean the U.S. just outclassed them, which I thought was was uh, was just marvelous to see. Yeah, and I think the U.S. actually played pretty well in the first game against Ukraine. Lost that match, but Ukraine has a, has a really good generation of players, particularly right. in the attacking end of the field. And, and uh, the U.S. was able to mitigate some of those strengths. Again, the U.S. were not the better team in that game. Ukraine was, but the margin was pretty thin. Um, Ukraine were, were only slightly better. And I thought that was a very good sign in the first match of the tournament. Uh, people were, were, were angry when because they said, oh, well, we lost. But um, you have to, again, uh, have some yeah. realistic expectations about your team and, and the competition. And yeah, I thought, and okay, I thought, oh, go I ahead. Thought, no, I just thought the Ukraine game was one where the U.S. got the tactics wrong a little bit, too. Yeah. And so, so when you talk about you know Ukraine being a little better, the U.S. kind of handicapped themselves by playing Puma call out wide by trying Timothy Weah at, 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 as the as the tip of the spear right like I think all that yeah. um, 
those sorts of problems manifested themselves for the first hour of the game, and the U.S. adjusted and were much better after their adjustment. So players, Pomacall, Wea, uh, Soto, Keita, uh, we have a, a number of players, I think, who improved their stock and their standing uh, in uh, – oh, and uh, Dest after that first game. I think Dest had a hard time against Ukraine, but Ukraine, again, has some really good wide, young wide players. Uh, some pretty good white players at the senior level, too, when you think of the likes of Yarmolenko. But uh, I think Dest acquitted himself well. The one player I'm really concerned about coming out of this World Cup, well, two, Conrad De La Fuente, but I think he's very young and maybe shouldn't, shouldn't have been thrown onto this team at such a young age. Uh, the, the other player is Chris Durkin, who um, we've seen kind of a stalling in his development, both in MLS and um, uh, at the youth national team level. Yeah, I mean, um, that's a good place to start. I think is the is kind of the the concerns with Durkin, and you know, is he is he a willing enough uh, defender? You know, there were moments against Ecuador, for example, where you know he got down into a crouch defensively, but just kept waiting for him to make the tackle, and it seemed almost like he was so concerned with tactical shape or ideas that he forgets that you like still have to play football. Um, you know, uh, what's the old, the old Roy Keane saying, right? Like sometimes you just have to go make the tackle. Yeah. More, yeah. <laughs> more or less that, like, I, I feel like there was some of that and, um, there's a little wheel trap to him, right? Like he also, even when he reads the game properly, like he's late to get to the angle. Um, and I don't want to bury him because he's, you know, 20 years old, right? But I think that it wasn't sort of what we've seen at times at DC United. And you almost wonder how system-based he is as opposed to, like, what his top-end level of talent is. And I think that those things are a little uh, disconcerting. The other player that, you know, and this won't make me particularly popular – um, and I, and I want to get back to your thoughts on Durkin, but like, I kind of felt like Conrad De La Fuente bears mention here. Um, yeah. the Barker winger, like I thought he had one really good game and we're all excited to see a kid from the United States spend as much time in Barker's Academy as, as Conrad has, but I didn't think it was a particularly good tournament for him. And, and quite honestly, sort of the disparity between Yuli Lanez and, and, and Conrad was really, really evident by the end of the tournament. Yeah. Um, and, you know, maybe the evaluation of them is a little closer. I actually think it is than, than the way they played at the U20 World Cup. But I also think it's a good lesson for American fans that are like, well, just because the kid's at the Barca Academy, right, doesn't mean that he's going to be a Barca caliber prospect. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, I mean, and so forth a- down the line. Right. So there's been a lot of talk about Conrad De La Fuente, particularly here in South Florida. He's from South Florida, uh, from our area, Neil. Uh, as I mentioned a few minutes earlier when we've been talking about Durkin, I thought he had, De La Fuente had a bad World Cup. Uh, I would put him and Durkin as the, probably the two worst U.S. players that were playing regularly. De La Fuente, though, perhaps is, should not have been on this team, given his age. And, and, and it may have been a reach. Uh, particularly when you have a guy like Giannis Lioness on, on, on the bench that you can, you can slot into that, um, into that position. And you've, you've got some other concerns, I think about 
um, just generally how we're evaluating talent. But that's a process. Um, that's something, though, I think is, is, is a little more solid on the U17 and U20 level than on the senior national team level. And I want to transition to the Josh Sargent thing and then get into a conversation with the senior team, uh, Neil. So Josh Sargent is going to have time off this summer after he was not taken to the U20s with the understanding and expectation he would be playing in the Gold Cup. Uh, I think in the pre-Gold Cup friendly against Jamaica, he, for me, is the best U.S. player that starts. Dwayne Holmes comes off the bench and probably plays better than him, but but also helps Sargent get some opportunities to score. He doesn't put uh, that one chance, that one golden chance that Holmes created from uh, in the back of the net. He gets cut from the team. Now, it's inexplicable also because I think watching that match, from my perspective, Sargent was the best player. And the reason he wasn't playing, the reason he didn't look good was because of the supporting cast. Sargent was making runs. He was uh, um, finding pockets of space. He was making uh, general movements off the ball that were unrewarded because he, I think he was thinking a second or two ahead of the guys he was playing with in that very, you know, admittedly kind of a B team that lost to Jamaica. Uh, but this goes back to my question about, are we now, uh, or not now, are we again not valuing uh, football tactical brain and technical ability as much as we are valuing athleticism and pace? Hence, uh, Jonathan Lewis, hence Jordan Morris, hence however many guys, you know, Giannis artists, all these guys are selected over, uh, Sergeant, one way, uh, you know, however you cut it. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I just, I, I was on a, a, a show last night where I talked about this, and I just feel like Josh Sargent's exclusion from both rosters, the final World Cup roster and the U twenty World Cup roster, is more or less inexcusable. And I feel like it's something that that Ernie Stewart and Greg Bearholzer kind of need to answer, not kind of, they need to answer for. I mean, they need to be asked. And, and Bearholzer's explanation, I just thought, was woefully inadequate, that we know he's a part of the future, but we didn't. Well, if you know he's a part of the future, and then you're making comments about how the Gold Cup is an evaluation process to build towards qualifying, which is essentially what Bearholzer's position is now, then why isn't Josh Sargent there? Because he's clearly going to be somebody that influences the qualifying campaign even if it's as a young guy that comes off the bench when Josie Altador gives you an hour or 70 minutes or whatever he has. So I just think, and you know, this idea that Giassi's artist who I thought was one of two U S players who kind of acquitted themselves pretty well against uh, Venezuela, Kardec. Um, yeah. You know, it, what was kind of interesting to see like Giassi understand system enough to like come back deep show for the ball and, and, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, be the guy who would go into the crowd and, and play the ball to keep possession moving towards the other side as opposed to a lot of this just kick the ball around stuff that we saw. Um, where, you know, the U.S. had a lot of possession, but there was no intent, there was no purpose, there was no kind of bite to it. So I thought uh, from that respect, you know, I get this idea that, that Bearhalter's comfortable with Zardis, but I'm, that's also a concern I have about Bearhalter. Um that is far more magnified now that we're getting close to his first competitive tournament than it was when he first came in. Because it seems like, to me, Bearhalter is playing multiple guys that he's just really comfortable with, starting with Will Trapp and then, you know, moving kind of down the line with Zach Steffen, who's made two errors in the last two friendlies. 
um, really the same air, which is yeah. And, and there's just not been enough scrutiny about. Um, I'm sorry to cut you no, off. No, you, you see know, the point. Not I'm enough scrutiny. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not enough scrutiny of Brad Guzan not being in this team. Okay, so I guess it's an evaluation process, and Guzan's going to be 38 going on 39 in Cutter. I get that. Um, however, uh, goalkeepers age differently than um, than than uh, uh, field players. And, and Guzan, while not at the top level he was at, uh, you know, by the way, I, I'm one of the few people who subscribes. It, there's been a lot of controversy about Shep Messing's comments that Jurgen Klinsmann considered dropping Tim Howard for Brad Guzan in 2014. We're glad he didn't. I will say at that time, I was a, a firm believer Guzan was the better keeper. And uh, in, in fact, um, had uh, had made that position of mine clear on social media throughout that 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 the preceding Premier League season. I thought Guzan was the best American keeper. So, um, but the point being, you're not you're not calling in Guzan because you don't think he's going to be factoring in the future. Um, but yet, uh, you make this decision not to bring Sargent. It's 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 incredibly inconsistent. Yeah, and it's not just it's not just Guzan, right? It's Ethan Horvath who was winning Europa League knockouts. Yeah, um, right. So, so you know what value? There's inconsistency with what value you place on club form, and there's inconsistency with what value you place on fitness. Uh, because my argument, my my secondary argument on Sargent isn't just that you're wasting his whole summer, but if you're really concerned about his fitness, then the worst thing you can do is leave him home from everything. You know he. Yeah, get him with the U twenties where they need a number nine because Sebastian Soto's not really that, um, and certainly against Ecuador it would have been useful to have somebody that could go up and win the fifty fifty ball and play a little bit more like a target player, um, and and you know and that's not to say that Soto didn't have a good tournament he did but the goals he scored we've kind of overvalued a little I think and I mean it's, like, it's a yeah. hot take right but like they're poacher's goals I mean good for him for getting in the right position but he's still not like none of these things are things that Sargent necessarily can do or add. So I thought um, that was kind of the disappointing thing with that inclusion. And then I think we, we need to talk about, you know, Omar Gonzalez and, and why, what value he brings in coming back other than familiarity, um, you know, as, as yeah. opposed to Fabian Johnson. Like if you're really, if you really want to build possession from the back and you really want to have, uh, a fullback that can kind of function as another midfielder. Um, you know, I know we're talking about two different positions, obviously, with Gonzalez and Johnson, so I don't want to confuse people. But uh, just because Omar Gonzalez played in Mexico doesn't mean he can build possession from the back. <laughs> yeah, um, no, no. In fact, in fact, he's quite quite poor at this. I mean, and, and this is this is where again overvaluing goals. You just mentioned it about Soto. I think Omar Gonzalez's continued inclusion with all these various U.S. men's national team coaches has owes itself to his, his uh, ability on set pieces, attacking set pieces to score goals. Right. It has nothing to do with his play as a center back where, uh, quite frankly, and, and, and you know, uh, uh, we were at a game in, in, in Tampa where we were both, you ended up getting to ask Bruce Arena the question. We were both concerned about Gonzalez's positional uh, play, even though he had scored two goals in that game in the Gold Cup uh, two years ago, that uh, – uh, Martinique's goal seemed to come from Gonzalez's mistakes or Gonzalez being out of position. And um, there seemed to be no acknowledgement of his, his uh, misreading of the, of the game, which is something fundamentally we've seen from him from, from a number of years. Um, I want to throw this out also on, on the Sargent point, last, last point. Um, 
for those now who look back at Jurgen Klinsmann and keep uh, mocking or questioning why he, 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 he was selecting Chris Wondolowski consistently his last few years, uh, Klinsmann's last few years as manager, I think we now have our answer is that there wasn't another guy in the U.S. player pool that, uh, other than Josie Altador, right? But Altador was, was often injured, and, and I think Klinsmann just wanted another guy like this who um, could hold the ball up uh, but also could score poacher's goals. Right. There wasn't a guy who had both those qualities. And I'm not even sure Altador has that second quality. There wasn't a guy who had uh, both those qualities in the U.S. men's national team. So as I see the sergeant cut and I've evaluated it the last few days, I I kind of assessed also this is why Klinsman kept selecting Wondolowski. And people would get angry every well, – what was the old joke, Neil, that uh, Klinsman's looking for 22 foreign-born players with U.S. eligibility uh, <laughs> and Chris Wondolowski. <laughs> Because Wanda was always picked by Klinsman, but I think there was a reason for it because there just there's a lack of players like that in our pool. Sargent has those qualities, and at 18, um, at, with the whole world in front of him, those qualities for whatever reason aren't being valued by the, this particular technical staff. Yeah, and it's it's just odd. I mean, look, I don't want to harp on the Gonzalez thing, but. You know, we have Arena with his Galaxy connections to Gonzalez, and then we have Gerhalter yeah. with the LA Galaxy connections to Gonzalez. And I think those yeah, they play together. Look, those questions have to be asked because we can we can say, as our friend Nipun Chopra did, that you know the process requires patience. But if we're just saying that to say it, and not being also also not critically interrogating what the process is. Um, then we failed. So, you know, the process still has to be the right process and questions have to be asked about it, I guess is what I'm saying. And I think, you know, look, maybe light most favorable to, to Bearholzer. Omar's only here because John Brooks isn't fit. Okay. And, and fine. If that's, if that's the reason, then uh, so be it, I guess. <laughs> Um, uh, that was Arena's excuse, actually, for 2017 was that, well, uh, Gonzalez wouldn't have been playing if, if Brooks was fit. I mean, in fact, I think Arena, in hindsight, put the whole failure to qualify on Brooks not being fit, which was fine in hindsight. But again, that, that can't always be the excuse. Yeah, but it's also, I mean, but then if we're going to talk about that and then players that are fit and available, then we have to talk about excluding Fabian Johnson from the team. Absolutely. Because Absolutely. – we're playing Tyler Adams out of position when it's clear that the only option we have other than Tyler Adams that's competent internationally is still Michael Bradley. And, and so in order to play your best 11 players, you know, you're of two schools. You either play Adams in his best position and then you're not playing your best 11 players or you play your best 11 players. And that means Michael Bradley's on the field and you have to move Tyler Adams to accommodate so you can play your best 11. And, and that's just where the pool is right now, right? I don't want to have Michael Bradley discussions because he's still one of the best 11 players. Um, but let's have the Fabian Johnson discussion. Sorry to cut you off, uh, Neil, but I don't want to get too no, far away I mean, from Fabian, that. No, Fabian should be incorporated because, in that because he solves one of those problems. Well, he solves maybe another problem, which is he could play left back. Uh, I, the idea of Tim Ream uh, go, going into a major tournament with Tim Ream as your left back or uh, Anthony Robinson's been, been caught – I think that that's, that's pretty feral. He had a dreadful match against Jamaica, although he was playing as a wingback. Uh, I'm, I'm not quite sure that you have options at left back 
uh, or at right back. So, I mean, Fabian Johnson can cover in any number of places. And when you're in an international tournament, versatility is so important. You know, I think about uh, this Women's World Cup we've watched all weekend, Heather O'Reilly on the set. You know, she's adding another piece of versatility to her repertoire, <laughs> being a, you know, a pretty good commentator. But she, she, she was someone that U.S. women's coaches could plug in in various positions. Um, right. And we've had those guys at the men's level uh, that, that, that you could play in, 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 in various positions in international tournaments when you're trying to, uh, when you have 23 roster spots or you have 20 field spots. So you got to make every single one of those spots count. Um, the idea of a guy like Fabian Johnson who could play four or five positions, uh, especially when you have a player pool that, let's face it, isn't very good, doesn't have very, very much depth and quality. The idea that you're not even considering him is, uh, I think quite ludicrous, and, I, and I'd love an explanation from, uh, again, the technical team of Ernie Stewart and Greg Verhalter why we haven't even uh, had a sniff of uh, Fabian Johnson in the last. Yeah, years. And, and let's be clear about something, so that so that listeners know. All right, like TYC knows factually because we've talked to Fabian that he would have come to the Gold Cup if he had been asked to, um, and he wasn't. So. You know, they could say, well, we had conversations with Fabian, and that would be true. But those conversations never involve picking up the phone and saying, hey, we really like you on the Gold Cup team. Are you going to come? Right? And so they never got to that. They never progressed to that point. And so if we say, well, Fabian's the past, he's older now. You know, that's fair. But then we're saying, you know, okay, we think that it's okay to get rid of a guy with 200 plus first division appearances in Europe who has shown uh, that he'll play wherever you want him to play historically and really fits two or three positions of need. Cause he could slot in where Paul Ariola was yesterday too. And probably, uh, you know, and, I, and we yeah, like we love Paul's work rate, right? Like TYC is a fan of that, but you know, he has a score yesterday. Uh, where he just, I don't know how he missed, honestly. Um, so I think you're kind of dealing with a guy in Fabian that could play multiple spots and like does the things that you want American footballers to do. So why isn't he included when Omar Gonzalez is? Those are hard questions, and, and they're really questions that, that should be asked. Yeah, and, and one other selection I want to uh, I want to scrutinize here is uh, Jonathan Lewis. Yeah, well, then let's do it. Let's talk about that, and then the you know maybe the omission of Sands from the U twenties too should probably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, what what is the uh, what is the rationale for picking a player who? Um, and and I will admit I have not watched as much MLS this season as I have in, in past seasons. But when I've watched New York City FC, it's, it's just not an influential player, in my opinion. Um, when, okay, again, the, the, the talent level for the U.S. is maybe its lowest in almost 30 years. I, I'm, not, I'm not denying that. However, um, I think there are other wide players who probably warranted a call-up and inclusion in this roster over him. Right. Uh, and obviously, Leggett is hurt. We know that. So that, that's... That, Partly explains Lewis's selection, but doesn't completely explain. Yeah, I mean, I think that's got to be part of it. That the Leggett injury has got to be kind of a factor. Um, and then maybe, 
you know, I guess the one thing we should add on, on Fabian is, you know, maybe Fabian told us one thing and U.S. soccer something different. Very unlikely, but <laughs> if we want to speculate down that rabbit hole, okay. Um, yeah, I just don't I don't understand. And, and the explanation from Bearholzer last time was that Lewis performed well in friendlies. And so immediately uh, kind of got that extra jolt of credibility. But, I, you know, again, this is what I mean by when we're getting inconsistent about when club form matters. Uh, yeah. You know, does, does club form matter for him but not matter for Kellen Acosta, who I think would be useful at one of those fullback spots? Well, right. does fitness matter? Fitness is obviously really a big priority to Bearhunter because he talked about it again yesterday. Well, we're still trying to get people where we want to be from a fitness standpoint. Okay. That's why he sent Kellen Acosta home in January. That's why one of the reasons he says he sent Josh Sargent home. Um, so at least, you know, there seems to be some consistency about that. And I don't want to pick on Greg too much because I think he's been very candid about a lot of things. But I still kind of want to know, you know, is there a line to be drawn, Kardec, between trusting people you know a little too much, especially early in your tenure? Uh, you know, part of the yeah. part of the hard part of being the national team coach is you have to separate yourself from players that you know and trust at the club level. And I think, like, like I think Jurgen Klinsmann and Sasha Kleschen is a great example of that. Like, I think Jurgen liked having Sasha around, and it's instructive that he brought Sasha back when he really needed him to get out of the subhex. Um, yeah, but I also think Jurgen knew that Sasha was a little too slow to play high-level international football, right? Uh, that's, that's, that's a conclusion Bob came to, too. And it's a conclusion um, Bob just... came to, too, and I think it's an important example of, like, instead of giving Will Trapp the captain's armband, now needs to be the time to have a hard conversation with Will. Yeah, jo- Jonathan Lewis um, is a player um, that I, I, I'm familiar with because he's from South Florida. Right. He's from, actually, right around the corner from both of yeah. us. from from... Uh, from the plantation area, from Fort Lauderdale, Fort Lauderdale area. Um, I, I think since he, he moved to Colorado, maybe he's played a little better. Um, but again, that would be kind of a snapshot form because when he was with New York City FC, he had, he had fallen off. Um, he hasn't quite become the player we had hoped, but you, know, you can see that about any number of guys. <laughs> um, but the Lewis inclusion, I think, again, indicates to us that there is an emphasis on pace and athleticism in this team uh, and, and that uh, is um, an overemphasis of, of the way uh, the U.S. men are going to have to play for now it, it, while Burhalter builds his system, right, or builds um, the culture around his system. Jordan Morris is another one, right? Jordan Morris is a, an exceptionally pacey and athletic player who is not um, necessarily – is it necessarily – you know, a top level international. I don't think he's, he's really kicked on at the international level since his first few caps with Jurgen Klinsmann. Uh, but he's a player that um, it seems like whether it's Klinsmann, whether it's arena or whether it's um, um, Berhalter, they've fallen in love with his athleticism. Uh, back to your point about uh, uh, Neil, about uh, players that, that uh, coaches are comfortable with. Every coach has had that arena got criticized for years for bringing consistently bring Richie Williams and Ben Olsen yeah, to the national right. team um, because he, he, had, 
he had had them in DC United. Right. I was, that was the name I was about to mention with Bob Bradley was, was Jonathan Bornstein um, and, and, and to a, a lesser extent, Ricardo Clark, who he had yep. had for a year or two at Red Bull yep. uh, or the Metro Stars in those days. And then uh, with Klinsman, uh, we know it was Kyle Beckerman and, and Wondolowski. Right. Uh, and, and then the, and then the German-American contingent. But Wondolowski seemed to be the, the big bugaboo. Um, not that he had any connections to these guys in terms of uh, having managed them at the club level. But in the case of Beckerman, it was a it was a clear um, point of emphasis from Klinsman. Beckerman wasn't a guy that was being selected regularly. He was being selected for B teams by Bradley. And right away, a lot of the team was built around him. Now with uh, Burhalter, I sense. Uh, well, with Arena Part 2, it was definitely Omar Gonzalez. And I think I sense with Burhalter, we're going to see a lot of Zardes in particular. Um, Trap, I'm not sure because I, I um, as much as we as make that assumption, the fact that Burhalter brought Michael Bradley back into the national team fold, maybe he had to, right? Because it was just, it had gotten kind of silly, the exclusion of Michael Bradley uh, for, for, for over a year. But, um, the fact that Bradley is now prominently back in the fold makes me think that um, Burhalter has some concerns with Trap as a as a six well, uh, at the international well, level. Well, I think we're we're gonna find out next Tuesday on the 18th. I mean, and if we don't find out then, we're gonna find out the 22nd. Um, you know, when they play Trinidad and Tobago, because I think if if Trap is starting over Bradley in that game, then, you know, maybe we haven't learned anything. And then what is Michael doing there? Um, but I think, you know, that's, let, let me, let me ask you this to kind of, to, to kind of put a bow on this. Like, yeah. what was the point of these two friendlies? Like, what do you think Greg wanted to accomplish? Cause okay. You lose four, nothing on, on aggregate. Right. Um, right. And certainly bear Halter mentioned something about accommodating some of the, I guess to John Strong, he said something about accommodating some of the clubs in terms of like minutes played and demanded. But to me, I just kind of wondered what they were doing, especially yesterday. Like they didn't seem to make tactical adjustments. Was it just, we're just going to play system, 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 no matter what the score is? Because uh, that's kind of what happened against Venezuela. And, you know, it, it, what's he hoping to accomplish? Because, you know, I don't think that was really asked. And, you know, if he was hoping to accomplish certainly something along the lines of improving the system, Cardic, they seem to kind of fail at that, right? Yeah, so I think system is a big part of it. Uh, Verhalter is a clear way of playing. Uh, we wrote an article about this uh, earlier in the year for TYAC that uh, essentially uh, he has a very built-in style. Now, the, the thing about Columbus was that that style was built largely around foreign players or non-U.S. men's national team eligible right. players. Right. The, the likes of Federico Iguain and Kai Kamara when he was there and, and Jesta Miram when he was there and, 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 and uh, um, you know, any number of other players who, who, who play for other national teams or, or not eligible to play for the U.S. So that was um, a big part of, uh, of, of it. You know, a guy like Jonathan Mensah as a center back we, we don't quite have a guy that's in our pool. Well, we do in John Brooks, but um, uh, that's fit. That, that, that can, can, can kind of play out of the back the way Mensa does. Right. So um, that's, um, that's the limitation on Burhalter. Now, is he, is he so 
Um, and maybe he has a much longer rope than we think he does. Because I, this is the big question, Neil, I think, when you ask about these two friendlies. I think the point was to build process and system. Uh, however, the results were disastrous. And I don't love emphasizing uh, results and friendlies. You know this. But you can't get away from the 4-0 aggregate. And the 4-0 aggregate kind of reflecting how the play looked, right? I mean, the Jamaica game was um, – now, maybe the 3-0 against Venezuela wasn't – it wasn't a fair reflection of the match. Maybe it should have been 2-0 or 3-1. But 1-0 against Jamaica was – probably should have been 2-0 Jamaica, right, just based on the balance of play yeah. and how bad it was. Yeah. Um, so I think 4-0 overall is probably a fair reflection on – uh, uh, being a deficit of four goals is probably a, a fair reflection of the two matches. So uh, you have to now wonder if Verhalter has to think there just aren't enough U.S. men's national team eligible pool players who can play his system, which is a high energy um, play out of the back attacking based system. Yeah, look. And oh, go no, ahead, no, go let me finish the thought because I had kind of two thoughts. Yeah, yeah. So that the, the, the now the big concern is is Burhalter um, has he been given a lot of rope Neil where he has years to implement the system and the results in the Gold Cup uh, and the Concacaf Nations League aren't going to matter we know that the, the results in qualifying will matter okay by that time the rope uh, he would have used up all his rope or is this given the fact that it took the, the U.S. has essentially wasted two years now Let, let's be honest about this or, or uh, since October of 2017, so 20 months or so, has wasted in terms of, of, of kicking on and developing and having an identity and having a plan. Is this, um, is this a situation where Verhalter doesn't have very much rope, um, but he's trying to make a case that, he's bu- that there's a process and he's building a system so he gets more rope? I, I don't know. I don't know what the expectations are from U.S. soccer, but Verhalter is acting like a manager that feels like he has a four-year project and the results don't matter now. I'm trying to build a style and a system, which probably long-term would serve the U.S. very well. The problem is, Neil, we just don't have the, the level of player right now to exert. Well, that, that's uh, uh, indisputable. Yeah, no, well, we don't. Um, and I think that demands kind of a, an expectation reset from U.S. fans, um, which is important ahead of the Gold Cup. It, it also, we don't want to forget about interrogating the process which i think we're trying to do on this podcast right like we, we're trying to say look we understand that bear has a really big job to do over the next four years assuming that that's the amount of time he has uh but we should also question a why the u.s waited a year into the cycle to hire him if the process was this large we should also question b you know is greg relying too heavily on players he trusts and knows given the scale of the project should he be tinkering more and and evaluating and getting to know players he doesn't know who might be better um we should also be wondering see if some of this is just a byproduct of the like Sunil Gulati school of well you know we only missed the world cup because Dempsey hit the post and Blas Perez scored a goal that was offside like you know that kind of nonchalant writing off of things. So those questions have to be asked in in sort of the meta scale, Cardic. And then I think that there's like minute questions, the more minutia, like technical questions that have to be asked. Like guys like Total Soccer Show and and those people do such a great job of asking. And, you know, let's talk about football. 
Like, where does Weston McKinney fit in? And then if we want to have really nuanced discussions as Americans about football that we aren't or maybe haven't necessarily had in this country before or that we don't have enough of, then, you know, how much does playing at Schalke where you just counterpress impact Weston McKinney? Because we're all proud that he's at a big club in Europe. But then yesterday he's asked to do a certain job for Greg Bearhalter in a possession-based system. And honestly, Cardick, while he's with the pace of the game, as you noted rightly on Twitter, the tactical portion of it seemed too much for him. Like he didn't, he didn't, he didn't know when to show for the ball. He didn't know when to come back. And those, the reason that he didn't know isn't because he's not good. It's because he doesn't do that at his club. Right. Right? That's that's not Greg's fault. And so then we have to ask the secondary question. Well, maybe Schalke is not the best place for him, even though we love as Americans the idea that he's there because we know that brand. There's so many conversations that have to be had. And I think the, the cool thing right now is that we're just starting to be honest with ourselves that the U.S. might be bottoming out. Because that's yeah. what I saw in these two friendlies was I don't really know what Greg was trying to accomplish. But whatever it was, it failed spectacularly. And I think the U.S. is going to have trouble winning their Gold Cup group. Yeah, it's a group with Panama and Trinidad and Tobago. I mean, the Guiana game straightforward. But after that, anything could happen in those two matches, right? We know that. I mean, they could, they, 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 they could win both and end up with nine points. They could draw both, end up with five. I don't think they'll lose both, but you never know. Right. Uh, yeah, anything could happen. And, and uh, it, 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 the big question now is when you've got guys playing at high-level clubs, you, you, you hit a spectacular point, and maybe we should have gone there with, uh, with Conrad De La Fuente because I was thinking that when, when we had the conversation about him, that there is a certain style of football associated with these clubs. And maybe the way the U.S. plays or wants to play or the way that the majority of American pool players who play um, at MLS or a, a, in MLS or at clubs in Europe that don't have any sort of stylistic identity – uh, they're not able. They're, they're not on the same page, and this is this is a consistent problem because I think um, that's not going to change for McKinney at Schalke. David Wagner, who's former U.S. international, is going to go in there, and he has very much that same gegen pressing style he brought from Borussia Dortmund. He took it to the Premier League or took it to the Championship, and then eventually the Premier League with, with Huddersfield. They're going to play the same way. Uh, Schalke was playing under Brunreiter and, and, and all these other other right. managers. And, and, yeah, and, and Tedesco, et cetera. So um, they, they are going to um, they're going to continue that. That's the way Weston McKinney is going to play. And in that system, he plays any number of different positions because he knows the expectations. Playing center back in a, in a counter-pressing system like that is very different than playing center back here with this U.S. team. Same thing with central, central midfield. And you make a good point about him not showing for the ball, him not reading the game, knowing when to – uh, went to uh, drift deeper. I blamed a lot of that on, on Will Trapp's naivety as well. Uh, however, well, for sure. and Matt you know, Miaska, right? Like those guys. And, 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 yeah. I mean, I think Miaska has been, it's been uh, downright terrible these two matches. No, I and, mean, when you're trying to possess the ball, you know, a lot of players can get you. And I, I've done this when I, when I played, like, you know, you get so you can get kind of locked in on the first set of instructions is the way that I've always yeah. characterized. Like, okay, well, we have to keep the ball. Well, then you become afraid to take chances. Yeah. Right. And so like, instead of pinging the ball to McKinney, who's making a line busting run, 
you just play the safe pass, play the safe pass, play the safe pass, play the safe pass. And, you know, well, the result of always playing the safe pass is, you know, kind of the the, the tweet we saw from Daryl Grove yesterday. It was like, you know, if you need a guy to knock it back where it's, that's a little trap, he's your man. So, but but then you continue. I'm sorry, I derailed. Yeah, yeah, no, no worries. But Miazga is a, is a player that I think we all had great hope about. And um, it's his ability to be a ball-playing center back and also a, a, a no-nonsense defender at the same time. Um, he's lost a little bit of both of those characteristics. And again, maybe it's the, um, it, it's the supporting cast because um, I'm not DeAndre Yedlin's biggest fan, and he finally did see the bench at the end of the season for Newcastle, uh, finally was replaced at, at right back. However, um, the sorts of mistakes Yedlin was consistently making with the national team as a right back over the course of the last year in a lot of those meaningless friendlies under Sarakin, uh, in, in fairness, uh, were mistakes he never made at Newcastle. Right. Uh, so, again, there is some sort of um, – I, I, I don't know if the camp is an unhappy camp, too. This is something – we're running short on time now, Neil, but maybe to, for people to ponder because um, you could say, yes, there's a system issue, so that's why McKinney can't replicate his Schalke form. That's why Edlin can't re- replicate his Newcastle form. That's why – we'll see what happens with Tyler Adams this summer, but if he doesn't replicate his Leipzig form, there's a system issue. Um, but it also could be there's an unhappy camp issue. Um, the U.S. used to be a very unified group, and I think this is one of the, 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 the things to take from the time period between um, 2000 or so when Bruce Arena really got the group together. Uh, the 99 Confederations Cup maybe would be the starting point of that uh, through uh, the, the end of Bob Bradley's tenure, maybe the beginning of Jurgen Klinsmann's tenure. Maybe you, you dated all the way through the 14. Maybe, maybe even through 20. Yeah, maybe even through 2014. Yeah, that it was a very happy camp. It was a team. There was a unified sense of purpose. That seems to have all dissipated in the last few years. I, I don't know that it's a happy situation anymore. I don't know that when uh, a Christian Pulisic or Weston McKinney uh, gets a phone call, you know, excelling at, at top-level clubs in Dortmund and, 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 and Schalke, that they're excited. And they'd, they'd probably be on the same flight because Schalke, <laughs> obviously, they're big rivals, right? I don't know if, if Christian and, and Weston are like, oh, God, oh, we got to go to that camp, or if they're ex- genuinely excited. I don't know. I'm, I'm beginning to sense... Because this was the thing, important thing, and I'll leave the discussion for today on this, uh, Neil. I always felt, even though we had some guys really excelling at the club level in Europe, the Clint Dempsey's, Brian McBride's, um, the Claudio Reynas, et cetera, that our players tended to play better as internationals than they did at their clubs. They tended to play up to a certain level. And there were even English people who would tell me this. Oh, well, the U.S. is made up of Fulham players, but yet, you know, they look like Liverpool players or Chelsea players when they play for their national team. And... Um, that I got told that at Wembley, the yeah. U.S. England game, in, going into the game in 2008. Someone told me that directly. That yeah, these guys all up their level for their national team. Now we've got guys at you know, bigger clubs. Well, maybe not bigger clubs than them, but we have enough guys at big clubs that um, they're not able to replicate their form on the national team. And it's the same thing with a lot of guys who've excelled in MLS who are not able to replicate their, even their MLS form on the national team. So maybe. Maybe there's a camp problem. Maybe there's a cultural problem uh, within the U.S. men's national team camp. Yeah, I mean, look, I think there's definitely, and, and that is a good place to end. I, I think that there's there's definitely a leadership problem, isn't there, Cardick? Like, there's a yeah, yeah. Th- this is a team that looks like it needs a captain, and I know they've been rotating the armband trying to find leadership. And to Greg's credit, he he has done that. Um, but but who is it? I mean, who's the guy that gets mad? You know who? 
you you saw yesterday like Tim Ream blow up on the third goal at the at the AR about the uh, you know prospect that Ronan was like a little offside, right? Um, and and maybe he was. It looked like he it, was. It, 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 like, yeah. did it look like Aaron Long kind of played him back on, but uh, maybe uh, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Um, but that was that was the first. There wasn't a lot of fire. There was another moment where, um, uh, you know, Dwayne Holmes got like furious. I, I don't even know who he passed to, but like it was a really nice pass to his feet and the ball kind of went woo high in the air and you know. Um so there was that. And then obviously Stefan losing his cool after the first goal first goal, uh Miazka and McKinney and you know, I that looked kind of bad to me because like it was clearly Stefan's fault. <laughs> but yeah. Then again at least he was mad. <laughs> Because it's so weird to watch a U.S. team with their just heads down and, and they just didn't seem like – it's almost like they expected that they would fail. Yeah, look, this isn't great for Zach Steffen either uh, because he, he's moving to Manchester City this summer. The reports are he'll be loaned to Eintracht Frankfurt. I have a, a source uh, close to Man City who basically confirmed that to me. So uh, not to Eintracht Frankfurt, excuse me, to Fortuna Dusseldorf, who was a mid-table team in the Bundesliga this year. So he's going to have to be in good form – to start for a mid-table team in the Bundesliga. Right. Uh, the form we've seen the last two matches, I, I, can't, I don't see him as a starting goalkeeper in the Bundesliga. Do you? No, and his competition for starters should be from yeah. Ethan Horvath, who's going to be a starter in the Champions League. So, Right, exactly. So that, that, that's, um, that, that, that's another fundamental question. This is, you, know, you mentioned the manager and favorites. Maybe uh, we just have to get used to Stefan and maybe some of these errors and him playing through it. And, and perhaps some of it is communication issues with the back. But you mentioned leadership. You want to see leadership from your center backs and your central midfielders. And when you don't have Michael Bradley on the pitch, you don't have any natural leaders in this group. And, and maybe someone will emerge as one. I mean, I think the hope had been that Miazga would. Um, that hasn't happened. Uh, obviously, Timmy Reams of Edrin, he showed some of it. But uh, I think that's a very good place to leave off to, today. You know, there are all kinds of problems. But one of them is lack of leaders, lack of uh, someone who's going to get in other players' faces. Maybe the last few years have neutered so many of our guys that they're just – they're not expressive anymore. Yeah. No, I mean – and, I, you know, I think – and this gets into to what your, your friend Taylor Tolman talked about a little bit. Like it is – we kind of need to be asking these sorts of like existential questions about – about where the program is right now um, and what are we doing? It's kind of the, what are we doing Tolman question from the middle of the year when we hadn't hired a manager to now. And, and, you know, so if it seemed like this podcast, the men's portion of it was full of these sorts of existential questions, it's because there are a lot of them facing the program. And, and, And we have to be, you know, mindful of that. And it's the first time we've been in this position, right? Because um, ever since uh, the, the TNT match, and or you can date it back to the U20 World Cup in 1989, uh, when we made the uh, the semifinals, it's been an upward trajectory uh, it, through 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 the 90s. The 98 World Cup was uh, was a slight deviation; it didn't go well. But quite frankly, the 98 World Cup, as I've always said, Neil, <laughs> historically was an outlier in that era for the U.S. Yep. We had gone to the semifinals of Copa America in '95. We would go to the semifinals in '99 of the Confederations Cup, beating Germany along the way, uh, beating Germany in the group stage. So 
that it was, and we had played really well coming into the 98 World Cup in terms of friendlies and, and beating Brazil um, in, a, a few months earlier. So it was an outlier. So there's been this upward trajectory that kind of stopped around 2014, stagnated in 15 and 16. But now, you know, since six, late 16, uh, since, that, since really that result in Columbus against uh, Mexico has just been a downward uh, spiral that we have not seen in the 30 years of contemporary modern U.S. men's national team history. There's no precedent for it. There's no historical comparison. Uh, it's just as bad as it gets. So part of it, Neil, is people like you and I who've been around the game a long time are, are scratching our heads trying to find answers. But we really, we, none of us have ever been in this position before. Yep. 